0: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
1: Inside the one-yard line, Jaworski retreats. He's looking. He fires the football. the quick. He's going to go. 25-40. 45-40. It's 45-40. 35-40, Mike Quick, touchdown, the Eagles win. Jaworski, the fifth, 99 yards,
2: the longest pass play in Eagles history. Welcome back. It is Saturday at noon. Ray and Glenn, uh, tell us your story. Sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com. Well, Ray, we've done a lot of these, and somebody that we always wanted to get, we got them now, grew up <laughs> in Lackawanna, south of Buffalo, 15 miles from where I grew up, uh, star for the Philadelphia Eagles, NFL player of the year 1980, guy had a terrific career quarterback in this team, and one of those guys who stayed in town and made his mark after football, Ron Jaworski, joins us. Ron, what a pleasure. Oh, great to be with you guys. The show is fantastic. I listen to it regularly, so it's great to be a part of it. Uh, I started by saying you grew up south of Buffalo, Steel Town. Um, what's your earliest memory as a kid of football and starting to play and follow football?
3: I love football, Glenn. That, 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 to me, that was the bottom line. Uh, you know, when, when you grow up in a town like Buffalo, very similar to Philly, blue-collar, hard-working people, uh, you know, football's kind of the fabric of, of what they are. You know, it's tough, hard-nosed, and it's kind of defines communities like Buffalo and like Philadelphia. And I was a big Bills fan. And actually, when I was 12 years old, I had season tickets by myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, Glenn, you know, the place was called the old Rock Pile, War Memorial Stadium. Section 23, row 13, seat 3. I still remember my my seat number. The tickets were $3 a game. (laughs) And I would... I would take the bus up to the game and just became a huge Buffalo Bills fan because I I love football. So I guess that's where I got my indoctrination to at that time the American Football League. But now, of course, the Bills a major part of the NFL.
1: <laughs> well, you were, um, you know, you were, played everything growing up as a kid. And in, in high school, you were a big star in football and in baseball and in basketball. You played them all, um, but. The the Bills thing was very real with you. I mean, you were a real fan, and I remember you telling me a story one time that uh, the Jets were in town to play the Bills, and you were on the you were sort of standing in the end zone uh, with some of your friends watching the Jets warm up, and you were down at the end of the field where Namath was, and Namath throwing the ball. You said, Phew, "I can do what he's doing." I mean, I I. I <laughs> And I mean, it's it's sort of I mean it's sort of it's, it's the sort of thing that a flippant kid will say, but it also spoke to at, at, at a young age how much confidence you had in your own ability to throw the football.
3: Yeah, I, I bordered cocky, Ray. I, <laughs> I, I will say that. And it was actually it, uh, I went to the game. Uh, we had a bye week at Youngstown State, and a bunch of myself and my buddies uh, uh, decided, hey, let's let's go up to Buffalo, scalp some tickets, and get in the game. And we were in the end zone. At that time, you know, they had like a snow fence around the field. That's what kind of protected the fans from going on the field. And we were down in the end zone, and I'm watching Joe Namath warm up, and I said, man, I can do that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) It kind of got my buddy's attention, you know, but I really felt that way. After watching Joe pregame warm up and throwing the football down, I had watched on TV, but I'm – I'm 20 feet from it. I want to throw the football. I so said, I can do that. So I guess yeah, I probably was a little cocky.
2: <laughs> you, uh, you're a three-star sport in high school. And I guess you even got a, a baseball offer from the Cardinals. And the football offers start coming in because you're a star. And uh, from what I read, Syracuse, Georgia Tech, Boston College, big-time programs are looking at you. And you decide, I'm going to go to Youngstown State, which is not of the caliber of those schools. Why that decision? Um, I really didn't decide that. My dad did. And uh, it was probably the one decision
3: I, I, I didn't make in my life that uh, my dad made. It was 100% correct. And, and, you know, coming out of high school, I had a chance to sign with the St. Louis Cardinals as a baseball player. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming out of college, actually, Cy Williams from the Detroit Lions tried to sign me as well. Uh, but I decided it was, it was going to be football at that point. But, you know, I was offered the, the St. Louis Cardinals opportunity. I was 17 years old. And what kid wouldn't want to play professional baseball when you're 17 years old if you have a chance, right? I wanted that opportunity. I was already assigned to Batavia in the New York Penn League. Uh, but my parents, I had an older brother, older sister, and neither went to college. And it was really, really important for my parents to see one of their, their kids go to college. So I'm sorry we're emotional there, but it was important to them. And they really let me know how important it was for me to go to college and you know, I lost that argument, but it's one loss that I really, really relish.
2: But you did have the opportunity to go to schools that were more known for football um, than Youngstown State. Specifically, why did you become, if I am correct, a penguin? Yes, that is that is correct. And I was <laughs> six foot two
3: and a half, about 160 pounds, coming out of Lackawanna High School. <laughs> I, went, I went and visited all those colleges and saw those programs that they had and, and, and my body wasn't ready for it. it. It just wasn't, you know, and and actually when we went, to, you know, I visited a number of schools, probably the, the, my second choice would have been Boston University. Uh, loved what they had up there at that time. But I went to Youngstown uh, and the coach really recruited my dad. You know, Youngstown was about uh, 200 miles from Lackawam, New York. We drove down, uh, spent a couple of days on campus and, you know, did the normal tour. Uh, and the head coach really recruited my dad. I spent more time with the defensive coordinator. And as, as we're walking you know, back to the car uh, to drive back to Lackawanna, my dad says, you know, I really like this place. I think you ought to go here. And as time wore on, I realized that the head coach really worked my dad over pretty good. <laughs> that was the choice I made.
1: Well, um, the other part of it is that your dad um, made sure that before your senior year of high school, um, he – he made he made he basically made you go get a job at the steel mill. He ba- he basically wanted to to have you have a fl- have a taste of what that true blue collar life and existence was like. So you got a job at the steel mill. Uh, and that was part of the reason why he wanted you to value a college education. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life in a steel mill or in a lumber yard like I am? Go get an education. <laughs> but I know going on working in the steel mill that summer before your senior year wasn't exactly what you had in mind, but your dad insisted that you do it, and you said it really, really paid off.
3: It was life-changing. I, I, you know, it, you know, in my hometown of Lackawanna, there were uh, 21,000 people in the city, and I think about 19,000 worked at Bethlehem Steel. So that that was just a way of life, you know. I mean, that's what that people didn't aspire to go to college and do great things. It was like, hey, can I become a foreman at Bethlehem Steel? And there was nothing wrong with that. It's just it was different. And uh, so, you know, I got the job in the steel mill, and I was actually playing baseball. This was during the summer, and you know, the games start started six six fifteen in the afternoon. I would work till five o'clock. My dad would pick me up, and man, I was exhausted. You know, I was I was in the roller mill, you baling steel all day and pushing a broom, and it was dirty and it was hard work and you know, every day I'd get in the car and say, you know, oh, man, I've had it. I can't keep it. And he, wouldn't, he was relentless. You're, you started the job. You're going to finish it. We're going to play baseball now. You play baseball. The next day you're going to go to the steel mill. You're going to play baseball again. And, but he, he wanted me to realize, you know, that, that hard work is really, really important. And I did not, after, after that summer, I did not want to go back to the steel mill. You know, I wanted to become a professional athlete. And I wanted to get my education first and foremost.
1: Well, one of the things that we always do with all of our interview subjects is we always ask them to tell us about their draft day story. Now, you had a terrific career at Youngstown. You went up there and you broke all the passing records, and now comes draft day. And um, uh, I've heard you tell the story, but I'll, 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 let, I'll let you tell. You're You're. In, you're. you're uh, lay out the lay out the dorm situation in Youngstown. In fact, there's like one payphone in the whole building, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, to, to me, it's a story I've told. I'm, uh, you know, covering a draft for ESPN all those years, and. You know, uh, you'd sit there and and, and watch the draft, and and, you know, here I am at at Addison Square Garden. uh, You know, up in New York, where hell of different venues, and you know, you see these guys, you know, pre-draft or in their rooms, are getting you know, $5,000 custom-made suits and, you know, diamond watches and everything <laughs> matches, and they're dressed like, you know, really, really to the nines. They get a limo ride over. They walk in, the red carpet. They got all that stuff going on, and it's great. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm thinking back to my day when I was – I was a 37 the 37 players selected, you know, in the draft. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my dorm room at Kauley Hall at Youngstown State University, room 710, the dorm room at the end of the hall with a bunch of my buddies. The draft was held on a Tuesday in February back then. So we're kind of all sitting around in a room. Don't I have no idea where I'm going to get drafted? You know, some people said fifth round, the third round. I really, yeah, you know, I really didn't know. Uh, uh, but fortunately, I played in a senior bowl game and had a good senior bowl game, and it kind of really popped the eyes of a lot of scouts that hey, I had some potential. So I'm sitting in my room and I hear the phone ring. It's down the end of the hall. I'm at one end of the hall and it's the other end of the hall, and the phone, it's a pay phone. You know, you got to put money in. I'm, maybe some people don't know what those things are anymore. But they'll say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a phone that was used by probably, you know, 50 guys on the floor of the dorm. you know, and the phone rings. I hear it ring, and I'm peeking out the door, and a foreign exchange student from Beirut answered the phone, and he yells down the hall, Jaworski, Los Angeles Rams on the phone. That's how I found <laughs> out I was trapped by the Los Angeles Rams. Wow. Uh, and I tell that story, people, like, they can't understand that. You know, people no. nowadays just can't understand how the 37th player in the country Found out he was being drafted by that team,
2: so uh, that is great. So, so you go to the Rams, uh, 1973, and you go in, and you're originally a backup. John Hadle is there, the longtime veteran. James Harris, very exciting young player, also former Buffalo Bill, and yeah. you're you're a, a backup. But uh, you you do start games. You start nine games in four years, win them all, get to play in the playoffs against the Cardinals, beat them. But you're kind of stuck there. Um, and I guess you you decide it's, or you're hoping to, to try to get out of there and get the opportunity. Is that, is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's, I I, I had decided I, I was going to, you know, not stay in LA and stay with the Rams that I needed to go to a more stable situation. I was there four years. And you mentioned, you know, John Hadle, James Harris, you can include in the mix, Pat Hayden. Uh, and it was there as well. And, I had a great relationship with all those guys, but you know the, the organization as a whole could not make a decision on the quarterback. It was, you know, I don't know, like you put a bunch of pieces of paper in a hat and see was going to be your quarterback this week. And it just they couldn't make a decision. And, and and for me, you know, I had served my time of learning the game. Hey, probably my first or second year, I wasn't ready to be a starter, uh, but by the third year, I was ready. And I, I felt that I was, you know, I, I just wasn't being treated right. I wanted to be the guy, and I think I had proved that. You know, in playoff games and winning playoff games, but they couldn't make that decision. So at the end of that fourth year, and actually sometime in the middle of that fourth year, as you guys know Dick Vermeil was then coaching the Eagles my last year in LA, he was here. He had an old friend of his out in the Valley staying in touch with me to make sure that I didn't sign a contract either with the Rams or at that time the Chargers. This is around Dan Fout's time as well, and the, and the Bears were really, really trying to sign me. So he wanted to make sure I didn't sign with anybody else. <laughs> so when the season ended, uh, I was recruited, like, coming out of high school by Dick Vermeule to come to Philadelphia, and it worked out great.
1: Yeah, well, it did, and uh, you're right, Dick. And you had known Dick. You uh, you knew him from L.A., so you had a little experience there. You knew what he represented. And Dick has his first year here in Philadelphia, 76, buff, tough year. He's, and at the end of that year, he decides Roman Gabriel is, you know, he's getting ready to retire. Mike Barilla wasn't his guy. He wants. He's made up his mind. He wants to get you, uh, so everything got, goes into place and char, they trade the rights to Charlie Young for the rights to you. But you're coming to Philadelphia now, and it, you're right. It's going to be the opportunity. Dick's going to give you the ball, and you're going to get your chance to play. But there's the memory of what the other time that you had been in Philadelphia, <laughs> <laughs> which was when you when you came in when you came in with the Rams team to play that Monday night game in '75, and you saw you saw what the vet could be like on a Monday night. It was pretty intimidating. Uh.
3: Uh, it was very intimidating, and it was my first real exposure to Philadelphia fans as an opponent. <laughs> you know, we were on that side, and, and we were beating up the East pretty bad tonight. We really had a good team. They did not. And all of a sudden, one of the coaches comes running up the sideline to everyone, put your helmets on, put your helmets on. I'm like, what's going on? All of a sudden – you look around, and these golf balls were coming down from the 700 level. They were throwing <laughs> golf balls at the Rams' sideline. So that was my first indoctrination to, to the Philadelphia fans and how emotional they were about their football team. And, Ray, I think that was the dog bone game as well. It was. The dog bone behind the bench. So it was just one of those. It, w- it was a low point you know, for the Eagles organization, but it was my, really my, my first indoctrination to understanding the passion of the Philadelphia Eagles fans.
2: Well, in your relationship, we'll talk about this more as the show goes on, your relationship with the Eagles fans has always been fascinating to me because some of them booed you back then, and then everybody loved you when you retired. Um <laughs> hey,
3: got shipped out of town either way you want to put boo- uh, it. Yeah, right, right, right.
2: <laughs> um, nobody ever remembers booing you. It's like, no, we always cheer Jaworski. Uh, yeah. you, you're a guy who had two great nicknames. Tough for most people to get one. You had two. How did Jaws and how did the Polish rifle come about?
3: Well, actually, Youngstown State, I was rifle run, So I, I go to Los Angeles, and I guess that wasn't charming enough for the L.A. media. And a, a gentleman by the name of Bud Ferrillo from the uh, Herald Examiner in Philadelphia coined the term the Polish rifle, you know, Jaworski, the rifle arm, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of stuck. And it stuck for probably about uh, six or seven years Till uh, I came to Philadelphia. And Doug Collins, you know, the, uh, the great basketball player and coach, was, was my neighbor. And uh, so, you know, it was probably like the 79, not seventy nine, eighty. when the movie Jaws was obviously, uh, you know, very predominant. Mm-hmm. And Doug coined the, the nickname Jaws. And most people thought it was hey, because of the movie and it's Jaws and Jaworski, blah, blah, blah. And Doug said, no, no, no. I, I, the nickname came from his lips are always slapping. That's where the name Jaws came from. So, uh, as he said, I, I couldn't shut him up, so I started calling him Jaws. <laughs> you know?
1: Well, we had, we had Doug Collins on uh, to tell us your story oh, about a month, a month or so ago. We talked, we talked about that. We talked about your friendship. But one of the things that Doug talked about, which I thought was, it was just a very unique time for sports in this area, in Philadelphia, because so many of you guys on all the different teams were all neighbors. I mean, you know, you lived next door to to Doug Collins. Mike Schmidt lived down the street. Vince Papali lived around the corner. Gary Dornhofer was, like, right in the same – and all of you guys were all – you were all friends. You were all buddies. Your families were together. Your wives knew each other. The kids played together. And, like, the Eagles guys used to go to Flyers games. The Phillies would come to Eagles games. I mean, there was this real sense of sports community here that you guys had right at a time when all the teams were getting good. That was really kind of a golden era in Philadelphia.
3: Well, it was a golden era, in my opinion. You just have to think back to 1980 when all four professional teams in the city were in the championship game. Now, unfortunately, only the Phillies were able to win the World Series where we all had lost. We lost the Super Bowl, the Flyers lost Stanley Cup, uh, and, and so on. So, you know, it, 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 was, it was just cool. I mean, I'm was a, I'm a sports fan. I still am a, a sports fan. But we all hung out together. You mentioned all the guys that were in. You know, we we're in Voorhees, New Jersey, and, you know, when Liz was kind of recruited with me to come here, the wives took her around and showed her, you know, houses and where we should live. So it really was it a community of, of the players, the wives. You know, we'd meet at Kaminsky's Tavern on a Friday afternoon. It was kind of like unscripted, but you'd walk in and, you know, uh, Bob Daly would be at the bar and, you know, all the players from from the Flyers would be there. Ocasio-Sixers guy would come in you know, the, the locker room with the vet, you know, we shared the, basically the showers and bathrooms with the Phillies. So I became friends with all those guys and yeah. Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt. So there really was a, a great feeling of community. And obviously, you know, we were winning. It was a great place to be. And, you know, Philly was, was the sports city at the time.
1: I remember yeah. you telling me a story about uh, the fact that there were some games after some, uh, there were after some games when you took a real beating, and might have even been the day after the Mike Hartenstein hit, which everybody remembers, when Doug Collins said his phone rang. And it was you calling Doug, saying, "Doug, could you come over here and help me get dressed? I can't get in my clothes today." I mean, I mean, it was literally that kind of relationship.
3: Yeah, there, yeah, there there were those times. I'm not sure it was the Hartenstein hit, but there were times where I was pretty, you know. Doug and I, and Kathy, and his family, and Chris, and everyone else, we you know we did the, we were neighbors. You know, we uh, you know Maddie Gukas would lived around the corner. John Lang was our attorney for a number of years. So you know, it, there there was that that feeling of community, and and we were all on the same team. You know, we were all professional athletes, and we helped each other out.
2: Ron Jaworski is our guest. Certainly, you recognize that voice. Uh, we have to break in just a couple minutes, um, but I want to. Th- this is something that I, has, I really want to get to. Um, as I was kind of researching this, I, I called up an old NFL films uh, clip, and it's when you were mic'd up in nineteen seventy-seven, and Vermeil is there, and he says, "Listen to me. You never have to worry about me jerking you from a game. Uh, you are my guy." Um, how did Dick Vermeil change you? What What did Dick Vermeil do for you? Turning point in my career. That, that, that clip, believe it or not,
3: you know a, a lot of wonderful things have happened uh, to me in my life. But from a, a football transformation, that was it. Uh, you know, and, and, and you just think back of it, that season. Uh, the Eagles—we weren't very good, but we were getting better. You know, the Eagles hadn't been in the playoffs in like 17 straight years. Can you imagine that now? And they, you know, as, as Coach always said, they've been changing the quarterback every game, and you can't win in the NFL. By changing your quarterback every week, I've got my guy, and he is my guy, and he defended me uh, to the hilt. And and he said that on the sideline, I'm wired. He's wired. An NFL films camera there. And it meant so much for me that, you know, it kind of relieved the pressure of, hey, the next throw, if I throw a bad ball, it's going to be picked off or whatever, and the coach's going to jerk me from the game. You know, he had the the utmost confidence in me. I was still learning as a young quarterback, and, and every young quarterback has to play through those mistakes. And get that confidence in yourself. Get that confidence in your offense, especially the head coach. Making that statement meant so much to me, and I knew that that someone had my back, and it was critical.
2: Ray, we got time for one more. Okay, yeah,
1: uh, and that was and that was the relationship that you had with Dick, and you talked a lot about uh, what he meant to you. As a coach, certainly, but as as really what was sort of a father figure to you, because you know you lost your dad at a fairly young, your dad was only forty nine when he died. Uh, you yeah, were I, I and you were in 19, college, yeah. yeah, and you were nineteen. Yep, I, so uh, I think your dad you, you told me your dad had a heart attack mowing the lawn or something, and you were away at yep. school, and you came home, and um, so that Dick at that point in your life really I mean he was your, he was your coach, but in many ways he was kind of your father figure at that at that stage yeah. of your life.
3: Yep, absolutely right. In fact, you know, I, I don't want to take anything away from my mom who who raised me during that interim period. But you know, as, as as a guy, you know, I think that father figure. My dad was a you know, he was a tough guy. Um, you know, he, he brought me up the right way, he had the right values. And you know, when I lost him, you know, I, I probably went a little bit off that straight and narrow that you need to stay on. Uh, and when I came to Philadelphia, you know, we all know Coach Ramiel. and we're also damn excited to be in Canton in, in August as he's inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was a tough, hard-nosed guy, you know, and, and and we, you know, we as young people always need that guy that makes sure that we tow the line or you won't going to be around if if you didn't tow the line and didn't act professionally the way you should act and be a good community person and be a good family man. All those things were important to Dick Vermeil, So he got a, Ray, you know this better than anybody. You know how many times I got my butt chewed out. <laughs> when, I went, when, when I went up, and, you know, after one of those days that maybe wasn't your best day, you know. And I you know, sit down and walk in the meeting room and say to me, Hey, Charles, consider your ass chewed out, you know. <laughs> go, what, what? go tell me to come down here and chew your ass out. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, that, that's how it was. But I, I knew why. You know, it, was, it, it, it wasn't about he wanted to be, you know, You just wanted me to be better. It was that simple, and that tough love really worked.
2: Ron Jaworski is our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. When we come back, we will talk about The 1980 season and beyond, right here, Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. I am not. We really
0: need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
2: I'm not going to let the fans substitute my quarterback. They've been doing that here for years, and they have never come up with a quarterback that can win for them. I've got one that can win for us.
3: Ron Jaworski, now,
2: come here. Come here, now come here. I want you to hear me when I say this. You never have to worry about me jerking you. Come on. Welcome back, Ray and Glenn. Tell us your story Saturday, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. We are thrilled to have Ron Jaworski as our guest and delighted to talk about the 1980 season, one of the best ever for this franchise, and for Ron, who personally led the NFC in passing, 27 touchdowns, Maxwell Club Player of the Year. Team goes 12 and 4. Let's take it right up to the NFC play, the NFC title game. Excuse me, against the Cowboys. Ron, what what's the first thing you think of when you think of that day?
3: Uh, I write slot split 47 slant. Will Montgomery on his second play of the game, going to the end zone. It was the loudest I ever heard. Veterans Stadium. It, it, it to this day it still resonates in my head.
1: It shook. I mean, the yeah. stadium shook. I mean, I can tell you, being in the press box, the state, the press box actually shook. And I'd been in that stadium many, many times, and I had never felt anything like what that stadium felt like when Wilbert broke through that line and ran for the touchdown. It was electric. It really was. It-
3: it was just an amazing feeling. And in fact, you know, the first play of the game, Ray, you may recollect, we ran a play action play and we had a potential touchdown, but our protection broke down. Uh, and I, it, it was a great game plan by Coach Vermeel, Coach Corey. You know, and obviously those first two players are always scripted. You're going to get to them because you think you've got opportunities. And we had an opportunity on the first play of the game, we, we, we possibly had a touchdown. Uh, but I couldn't get the ball to Harold and I got hit as I threw it. And we had those heating pads like I had it in my in my in my pockets in my jersey and that heating pad with all these chemicals in it broke. Randy White hit me. And he hit me pretty damn good too. And the packs broke. I felt all this burning sensation in my belly because these packs were burning my skin. So it was just one of those weird things. But I already knew what the second play was going to be as I just called it, you know I write slot split, you know, forty seven slant because that was the plan, because they were going to come up with their nickel defense, and we knew if we got a crease, Wilbur was going to hit it. You get Wilbur to crease, he was going to hit it. And it was just like that that play, that series, once we jumped out in front of them, that game was over. It was over for the Dallas Cowboys.
2: I've talked to other players on the team about that. Actually, Ray and I featured several on this Tell Us Your Story feature. And what they always said was, you know, the Cowboys beat the Eagles for – a decade or more but that day you guys just he's everybody i've talked to you said we knew we were going to win that day we knew it did you have that same confidence uh, yeah you're absolutely right you know
3: people call it upset you know i kind of thought it was a setup um you know the, the, it was cold it was maybe the coldest game i ever played and i think the wind chill was 15 to 20 below the wind was howling you know the cowboys coming in from dallas you know they they're not used to that cold weather tony door said as great as he was uh, didn't like getting hit. Didn't like hitting that wonderful turf at Veterans at, at Stadium. You know, <laughs> that soft cushion. And, you know, our guys gently laid him softly on the turf. You know, they didn't want to hurt him. <laughs> but but it, it was kind of funny. We Ray, you'd remember we were, we stayed down in Tampa that week because the weather was so bad in Philly. Right. And Coach took us to Tampa to try to get some good practices in. And we did. And Wilbur Montgomery was, you know, he was ailing. Wilbur was pretty banged up going into that game. And, you know, he actually – didn't go through full practice down in Tampa Bay, but by the end of the week, he was flying. I mean, he was flying, and it was kind of a, a feeling. Okay, we can get him. Wil- Wilbert is, in Wilbert's going to have a great game. You know, he went through some bumps and bruises early in the week, and we kind of played it. Uh, Wilbert's not doing well. Kind of maybe questionable for the game. Man, when he got that ball, he uh, and that the second play, the Jets were just turned on, and we said, "We got Wilbert. We're healthy." Our defense will stop these guys. They pummeled Danny White. They pummeled Tony Dorsett. Defense played an absolutely phenomenal game. The offense did enough to win the game in those tough conditions. But when that game was over, uh, I, I just remember I, – I, by the way, I still have the game ball from that game. Wow. As when the game ended, uh, it, took it took a knee. And I have a picture of the old Enquirer coming off the field, that ball – Two hands around that football. So always <laughs> two hands in the ball in that pocket, right? And I said, "I'm taking this ball. We just won the NFC championship So if anyone says they have the official game ball from the NFC championship game, there's only one, and I have it."
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this: it was it was the most one sided twenty to seven game I ever saw. I mean, that one felt more like seventy seven to seven. I mean, you guys really, really dominated dominated that game, and you described it very well. And then. After that game, there was the, just a the wonderful party that I, nobody could throw a, to, a party like Leonard Toes, and he threw and he threw he threw a humdinger that night, and everybody went and enjoyed it. Uh, Patty Labelle was there, everybody was there. You guys had a great time, um, and it was it was just a wonderful time in the city, and everybody celebrated, you know. But then, well, but, we, we should have right? Should oh, have. absolutely. I mean, that was
3: the, we beat the Dallas Cowboys, which, as, as we all know. They were our target. And, you know, we, we were tired of hearing about the Dallas Cowboys from Dick I mean, we, we, hey, we, you know, And we respected the Cowboys. It wasn't like you know, any, any, anything but respect. They were the team we had to beat if we were going to become you know, a good football team, a great football team. We had to beat the Cowboys. And that night when we beat the Cowboys Genesee Championship game, we felt to a certain degree we had arrived and accomplished our goal.
1: So well, that, you, uh, go ahead, Ray. That's. So I was just going to say, does that you now? But now you got another game to play. You know, now you've yep. you've really climbed the mountain. You've beaten the team that you wanted to beat. You've celebrated with your fans, but now you've got to go down to New Orleans and play one more game. And you run into an Oakland Raider team that was a wild card team, but really good. You had played them during the regular season, and it was a brutally tough game. I mean, you won it, but it was a struggle at the vet. Uh, and then you go out and and you lose that game and. Uh, I, I'm just wondering. I mean, you've had you've had all this time to think about it. And I know you have. Is there any way you could dissect that game when you go back and look at it and see, you know, where it, where it kind of got away from you and what might have been the reason for it?
2: Well,
3: I'll I, I tell you this: I have never looked at the game tape of that game. As much as I am a walk for my film study, I, I just haven't pulled the tape of that game out. I've replayed every game in my mind probably a thousand times. Um, it, it just wasn't our day. I made some mistakes in that game. Uh, the one I would take back, and, and I tell every, you know, my grand career, when I would talk to the Peyton Mannings, the Eli Mannings, and guys like that, you know, at Super Bowls, they, they would talk to me about my experience. I said, guys, I'm going to be blatantly honest with you. Let the game come to you. I think I wanted to win the game like we all did so bad. We played a little bit out of character. Uh, you know, the first pass I threw was intercepted. It was a play that I had seen probably 25 times during the season, maybe more I should have taken Wilbert in the flat, and I tried to squeeze it in John Spagnola, and obviously Rod Martin picked it off. And, you know, that, that kind of set the tempo for the game. They took an early lead in the game. We felt we had to play catch-up. But at the end of the game, we, we got away from what we did best, and that was run the football and play at passing. And we, we never got the running game going to the point where we could stay on schedule, and we were just playing catch-up the whole game. I'll give, I'll give the Raiders all the credit in the world. They beat us, but you know I've spoken to Jim Pluckett. I, I've, I've spoken to Matt Millen. You know, they felt they felt that we didn't play our best game. We felt we didn't play our best game. I think most people would say we were the better team, but we weren't the better team on Super Bowl Sunday. All
2: right, Ron, I want to play a little game here because uh, I want to get some names in this. I'm going to throw Uh-oh. you the, the name of somebody. Just <laughs> give me 15 seconds on each one. You ready? Try me. Wilbert Montgomery. My
3: guy, number 31, uh Still one of my dearest friends. We communicate on a regular basis. So, I mean, uh, that guy was special. Plain and simple. Sixth round draft choice, special. Stan Walters. My man Stan. We're I remember most about Stan. He was the fastest guy off the field at halftime at three hundred and ten pounds. Because he went to the locker room to get a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Berge. Bill <laughs> oh, Bubba, man. If there if there if there's a guy That was the the anchor of our defense through the Vermeule era. It was Bubba, man. Bubba played with a ferocity that uh, we just don't see anymore. That downhill linebacker just loves to stroke people. Harold Carmichael. My guy. I got a lot of guys. Yes, you do. one One of my finest moments, personally, was seeing Harold Carmichael inducted into the Hall of Fame.
2: Special guy. Leonard Toes. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Everyone loved Leonard Toast. I, I wish there were more owners nowadays like there were with Leonard Toast. Uh he was different, he was unique, but man did he love the Eagles.
2: Uh let me do two more. Mike Quick.
3: Ninety nine yards, two feet eleven inches, weak eye right, firm eight eighteen flat check, the longest pass play in the history of the National Football League. He's a driver, nine iron from my house. I see Mike on a regular basis.
2: <laughs> All right, and I'm going to start transitioning toward the, your later years with the Eagles with Randall Cunningham.
3: Oh, Randall. I, Randall, and I still communicate on a regular basis. Um, when Randall came in, the, the, the most raw talent I had ever seen, ever seen. And, may, and maybe to this day, st- still the best talent I've seen at the quarterback position. And as much as Buddy Ryan helped him, Buddy Ryan hurt him, because Randall needed to be disciplined in his game. He needed a coach that would be a hard-ass like Dick Vermeil was to be, and Buddy Ryan was a coach that would say, hey, we just need Randall to go out there and make three or four plays a game and we'll win. That's not how you win on a consistent level in the national football. League. It's the reason when Buddy Ryan and Randall Cunningham got to the playoffs, never won a playoff game. There wasn't enough discipline and structure in the football team, particularly on the offensive side. Buddy was as good as there ever was on a defensive side, but the offense he ignored
1: Ron, I remember I just want to take one more uh, look back at the, at the, at the Super Bowl and I remember that uh, you did an interview you, you came over and did an NFL films interview with Steve Zabel, which was a terrific interview. You sat with Steve for about an hour and talked about your life doing a lot of the same kind of things we're doing right now. And Steve asked you about um, the pain of losing that Super Bowl after everything you guys had accomplished and how hard you had worked to get there, the pain that you felt that day in the Superdome when you lost that game. And you said something I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget. You said, yeah, it hurt that day, but, you know, it hurts worse now. Yeah. And and, 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 you know, and your explanation was, because you know, that day, yeah, it hurt, but we always thought that next year we'll get a chance or the next year we'll get a chance, and we never did. And now today... I know we're never going to get that chance. And so the pain is actually worse today.
3: Exactly right. It's it, it's, it's still painful. You know, it, it, as, as a young quarterback, we're a young football team. I mean, Dick Vermeil had built what we thought was a juggernaut. And, you know, hey, we lost that game. And no question. I mean, there's an incredible pain, uh, a negative feeling. I we, we we thought we were going to win the game. In fact, you know the stories before the game. You know, we stayed at the hotel down there, the Hilton by the airport. You know, our last meeting on Saturday night before the Super Bowl. Uh, Woody Hayes addressed our football team, the legendary Ohio State football coach. Dick Vermeule gets up and talks again after Woody Hayes, and he says, we will be back in this room tomorrow night as the world champions. We were confident as hell. I mean, We were confident we were, going to, we were going to hoist that Vince Lombardi trophy. It didn't happen. And, yes, we were we were devastated it didn't happen. But in the back of our mind, we felt that, hey, we were a good young team. We started out the next season, it's actually 6-0, and and things fell a little bit apart there. The 82-player strike destroyed dick Vermeil, destroyed the eagles organization destroyed the camaraderie we had built for a number of years and and i think we were building a dynasty until that player strike happened but because we lost that super bowl never had a chance to keep that team together moving forward yeah it, it still bothers me more than ever now
2: so much to cover uh let let's move ahead post player strike into the buddy ryan era he comes in and we mentioned Randall. He wants to try the young guy, and the, he has this strategy of third down. You're the quarterback until it's third and long, and Randall comes in. That had to annoy you to no end.
3: <laughs> the hardest down in football. He brought in the young quarterback that wasn't ready to handle the hardest down in football. You know, and uh, I still remember him saying. I, I remember him accounts of him saying. You know, when he started doing that. Is going to be doing this. Well, you know, no one's ever done it since then. But that—that's that, that, irrelevant. But I, I, I can. I you know, I know he wanted to give Randall some plays in the field, and that's certainly. Was to his advantage to get him the field, but not in the toughest down in football. And I think, to a certain degree, it may have set Randall back a little bit.
1: You know, and, and and you know the buddy thing for you ends. He decides he's going to turn the thing over. He lets a lot of the veteran guys go, a lot of Dicks guys go. You go, John Spagnola goes. You go on, and you go to Miami, uh, and you're the backup to Dan Marino. But you get the opportunity uh, in that next preseason. To come back to the to come back to the vet a preseason game, but still you're coming back to the vet um, in that in the dolphin uniform and you come on the field and you got a standing ovation and it was a real genuine you don't see many standing ovations in preseason games but you <laughs> no. but you got a but you got a real one and I know your whole family was there and Liz was there and the kids were there and for all the tough times that you had with the fans and all the times you were booed to be welcomed back like that must have been a really warm feeling.
3: Well, it, it certainly was a great feeling. It, 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 it's typical to Philly fans. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it, they can boo you, but only they can boo you. You know, it's, it's almost like a, a, a sign of respect. And I think it was a respect for the, all the good times of 10 years, you know, that I played for the Eagles and it gave everything I had. It may have not brought a Super Bowl, but it brought a lot of good wins. It brought a lot of good memories. But uh, I think it was they're just appreciating the effort I, I made for 10 years. So uh, that was really, really important to me. It felt really good, and it's funny because Don Shula in that game, the first play of the game, he called a play action, deep comeback to Mark Duper on the right sideline, and I probably threw the best laser in the history of my career right in front of Buddy Ryan, who basically <laughs> decided to get rid of me. I was like, I was like take this, coach.
2: <laughs> Fans remembered you for a couple things. Um, you were tough. I mean, you got hit and you got up, and I think that, they maybe later, maybe begrudgingly, but accepted you for that. I, I, I don't really know what the question except you t- uh, you took a lot of hit. Lawrence Taylor, uh uh what, um Charles Mann. I'm just trying to remember those guys who were on your back. Well the one that everybody Mike remembers is Mike yeah, Hartenstein, yeah. Mike Hartenstein. Yeah. yeah. I mean yeah. Ron, you, you you are remembered for being a real tough guy. I I guess there's some gratification in that, right? Well, no question. I, uh,
3: availability was very important to me. I needed to be the guy on
2: the field. If your
3: quarterback is a wuss, what the hell is your team? You know, I mean, you got to get up and you got to play. You got to be a leader, and you know that—that's why Vermeil wanted me on that field. That's why he supported me the way he did. Uh, it, you know, that 116 game consecutive streak that I—I had—you know—was broken about I don't know about 15 years later by Favre.
1: Yeah. Um, yes,
3: you know, I, I mean, we're talking about an era where the quarterbacks got hit, guys. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about a, a, a different era than we are now, where you could go 200 games. You know, a bunch of guys have gone 200 games. So I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be on the field. I knew it was important to me. You know, in fact, you know, when Brett Favre broke my record, uh, Ronald Wolf brought me to Green Bay, and they stopped the game after the first play and recognized me and came up field to take the ball away from Brett Favre. So, you know, things like that are are meaningful, you know, to be on to be on the field, every step, to be there with your teammates, win or lose to show that, Hey, you're all in this together. So yes, that streak was very important to me. And yeah, I took a lot of beatings I kept getting up and and, it's a lesson. To me, it's a lesson. A lot of people see, if you want to make something yourself, man, you're going to get knocked down. You got to get up and fight.
1: Yeah. There's no, there's no question about that. I, um, and everybody remembers the streak, and everybody remembers the poundings that you took, and everybody remembers the booing that you endured. And the thing that, I think one of the things that, uh, that the fans really admired, and I know that your teammates, one of the reasons that your teammates loved you so much, was that toughness. And the fact that you were always, you were always going to be there for them. And on, when the offensive line wasn't very good, and you were taking a pounding, you never pointed your finger at them. And when the fans booed you on the times that they booed you, which they did, you never turned on them and said, what are they You know, what are they booing about? You know, oh, that's the gratitude that I get. I mean, you never once turned it around or pointed your finger at anybody else. If ever the finger had to be pointed, you pointed it at yourself.
3: There, 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 was, there was, well, this, this is kind of a, a good example of, 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 you know, dealing with what you have to deal with. Um, Buddy Ryan era, uh, Ted Plum's our offensive coordinator. You know, there's a timeout. You know, the, the offense is ready to run on the field. And we start running on the field, 11 guys, right, run on the field. All of a sudden, Ted Plum calls me back. And I'm not having a good day. The offense is having a good day. So I figured, okay, if 11 guys run on the field, you get booed. They're they're booing 11 guys, right?
2: So
3: <laughs> all of a sudden, I get called back. Let Ten guys run out. I begin to run out. And the begin to ring. You know, boo. So I, okay, I, guess, they're, I guess they're booing me, right? <laughs> so I get well, Look at, uh, Jerry Fury's our center, and I'm looking at Jerry, and I'm also looking at nine other guys. So now there are 10 guys, 20 eyeballs looking at me, right? They hear this crowd booing. It, it, to me, it was a test. What, what are these guys thinking right now? So they're looking at me in the huddle. I got the huddle, I looked up at all them, I kind of perused around, looked at their eyeballs. I said, they still love me, guys. Let's go, <laughs> and that's the way you have to deal with it. They, yeah. You know, they knew what. Was, but if I came in there like some some wilting flower, like oh, whoa, it's me. You know, well, what are they going to think? You know, so I made a joke of it, and everybody loved it. And I think we joke for a touchdown.
2: Ron, uh, we have really just a couple minutes left, and, and so much to cover. As Ray said, you went to the Dolphins. Uh, you went to the Chiefs in '89, your last season. Then you came back here, and you did so much. Your post football career could be a whole other episode of this. You had the broadcasting career, the golf club, your involvement with the Philly uh, Soul—a big part of the community. Um, What does Philadelphia mean for you, kind of, you know, in in your life after your career?
3: Well, it's essential. I mean, uh, you know, when we came here from Los Angeles, this became home. Uh, We raised our kids here, and I have seven seven grandsons. No daughters, no grand- wow. I have two daughters and a son, but all grandsons. So uh, four more, we might have a football, a football team. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, this is, this is home. It, 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 it's really simple. You know, when I retired, obviously, you know, the, terrific. at has been for 30 years. Um, I love that. But I, I also love the business I've been able to develop in this community. You know, you guys know my foundation has been very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jaws Playbook, we've raised over 6 million dollars for at-risk youth in our community. $6 million. I'm very proud of that. We built ball fields up in Huntington Park, Ventnor, New New, New Jersey, Millville, New Jersey, giving uniforms to kids, shoulder pads to kids, cheerleaders uniforms, concession stands, put astroturf on fields that were mud and dirt. So the has done a lot for at-risk kids in our community. That, That I am really proud of. And I can't thank the supporters and sponsors that I've had through the years that share the same values that myself and my family share.
1: You know, I was looking up a a story that I wrote about you uh, at the tail end of your well. Actually, was it was just a few years ago, and I wrote that Ron identifies with the city, with its people, with the row houses and the blue-collar work ethic that are as much a part of Philadelphia as Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. He was a fit for the town in the ten seasons that he played for the Eagles, and he's still a fit today. And I think that really does. I think it really does apply when you. I mean, you felt like you were coming to a good situation when you came to Philadelphia. You liked the coach. You thought you had a chance to get a chance to play. But I mean, your your arrival in Philadelphia became so much more than you could have ever imagined. I mean, here you are now, and I mean, even though you <laughs> you were born in upstate New York, you went to college in in Ohio. You finished your career in Kansas City. But I mean, you're as Philly a guy as a Philly guy could be.
3: Well, because it was my home, and I, and I think that, that that means a lot to me and my family. And I, I think. You know, if, if you look through the history of it, uh, you know how many great players in this town have left. You know, and and didn't make this their home. Didn't didn't raise their kids here, raise their grandkids here, give back to the community, run businesses here. You know, I, I have over 400 employees in, in my golf company. 400 people have jobs because of because of what I've done. I don't mean it arrogantly, but if I went back to Buffalo, those 400 jobs wouldn't be here in Philadelphia. So, you know, I, I believe in those things. I, I believe in you know, building a a strong business community and giving back in that regard.
2: Well, and you have. And final question, what did did it mean to you, Ron Jaworski, when those years later, you as a member of the community, you as alum of the Eagles, you as somebody who's kept ties to uh, the NFL through broadcasting, what did it mean to you when the Eagles finally did win that Super Bowl?
3: (laughs) Well, my wife and I and all my grandkids were at the game, um we were about the 50 yard line of near a, a lot of wonderful people that were Eagle fans and I uh, some very high profile people and I looked around and I never saw so many tears it was it was absolutely incredible
2: Well that is great and uh <laughs> listen we've uh, we're delighted to have you as our guest on Tell Us Your Story sponsored by Meridian Bank one of the area's best business banks learn why at meridianbanker.com/wip Ron Jaworski, you are a treasure and we appreciate your time Thank you, guys. Love working with you.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ron. Always a pleasure. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big
0: cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today.